Welcome to the Vinyl and Celluloid Podcast, home of all the great movie and music-related discussions. I'm your host, Pedro, and on this episode, I'm joined by Natalie Lethbridge, founder of Atonic Digital, to discuss what's happening in the entertainment industry, with a focus on over-the-top platforms like Disney Plus and Netflix. For a while, it seemed like the golden age of streaming would never end. But increased competition and soaring operational costs, among other factors, have halted a trend that has been shaping the entertainment landscape for the last decade. In this episode, we take a close look at the industry's current situation and try to make sense of what lies ahead. We will discuss what's happening in terms of consolidation within the space, the impact of ad-based pricing models, and new growth areas. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode, and well, let's get to it. So, Natalie, uh, thank you for being here today and agreeing to be a guest on this episode of Vinyl and Celluloid. I'm just going to take this opportunity like to f- give the floor over to you and uh, for you to give our listeners um, a quick intro. Thank you, Pedro, and thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is Natalie Lethbridge. I am uh, founder of Atonic Digital, and Atonic Digital has been going for about 10 years as an advisor uh, in the intersection of content technology and audience uh, development. And uh, it's been a brilliant ride in the last 10 years. Before that, I held a number of senior executive positions in um, various uh, companies, uh, including um, some of the studios, some of the platforms, and therefore I have an insider's perspective on some of the issues. My my specialisation is content, obviously, how content is delivered and experienced and monetized has changed radically. And uh, so I'm hoping that we can talk about that today. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's going to be the, uh, the core focus of the episode. And it seems like uh, we, we have the right expert to, to guide us on these changing times. And I mean, just uh, I would like to start with uh, my own quick view of what's been happening. These are certainly exciting and changing th- times in the industry. Um, basically, the way I see it is that uh, over the last decade, there was a massive shift in the entertainment industry. So when Netflix pioneered, you know, the online streaming as we know it, it had a clear proposition uh, to deliver an affordable one-stop alternative to the TV box sets that could be accessed anywhere and at any time, right, by any user. And when we fast forward to 2023, where we are now, we find a completely different space where Netflix is still a dominant force, but it's also a, a fragmented landscape with tons of players, rising prices and production costs, where the content is getting increasingly siloed. Uh, so it's no longer that one-stop solution, right? And um, when we look at these players, they compete on both price and, and content. And they're competing in an era of the post-peak attention that uh, certainly was somewhat delayed after uh, COVID managed to give people uh, additional carve-out time. But um, now under a different macroeconomic scenario and back to semi-normality, if you will, there's uh, more of a concern when it comes to the consumer's allocated budget to entertainment and also um, less time 
like we did before. I mean, this is my uh, view as somewhat of an outsider. Is this a correct or accurate description? Please, Natalie, enlighten me on the and us on this uh, this narrow view. I think in order to step into the view, uh, I, we probably have to step back a bit and look at the ecosystem over the last 20 years and where it was. So the truth is um, technology has obviously accelerated access to consumers and it's um, done away with um, territorial licensing and given um, platforms an ability to move beyond their geographical territories to global propositions And that scale um, has inevitably created a different dynamic, both in terms of um, content production and, you know, rolling out um, business models and, and the subscription model to audiences in the hundreds of millions, which was unheard of previously. I think if you step back 10 or 15 years, um, you had uh, very much the pay TV profile, which was a local profile. You had bundling with other services such as broadband. So triple play, quad play was the way uh, forward. And you had the bottleneck held by two different entities, either the um, the MSOs or the multi-systems operators, Com Comcasts of this world, the Skies in the UK, very much um, territorially focused. Or you had the studios um, controlling through the networks and the production of content and uh, a scenario ironically where there are a lot of cancellations and a lot of frustrations uh, because there was a very very narrow bottleneck in terms of content productions and you really had to show your wares and get through the LA screenings and then get through an elaborate process of surviving the first um, the first uh, 12 episodes on your broadcast in the US in order to really scale and get a return on investment as a content producer. All of that has been turned upside down. Why has it been turned upside down? Well, you know, as I said, technologies allowed cross-border access. Uh, platforms have operated globally just as they have in other sectors. And so scaling has been different. And as a result, we've seen a complete blow up of production costs and a complete change of, of uh, focus of audiences. In terms of business models, the chosen business model for the last 10 years, uh, interestingly, again, looking backwards, when uh, streaming first started, and I have to say I'm a bit of a veteran for that because I was involved in one of the very early streaming projects in the UK called Project Kangaroo and then involved in Hulu uh, when it first launched. And in those days, the model was really, ironically, um, an AVOD model, a free advertising-funded model. Um, people didn't believe that people would pay for um, online viewing, of course, Netflix exactly, yeah. blew that out of the water at a very low price point. And then it started in the US, then it's launched in a couple of territories. And then over time, three or four years, um, it then did its international launch and, and it's the player it is today. And, other, and the studios have now become tech players, built their own platforms, launched their own platforms and sought a direct relationship with consumers. So that is where the dynamic has changed. Um, it was a very fragmented market 12 years ago, ironically. Uh, it is now a fragmented market through competition, 
because mm. everyone's followed Netflix model and uh, and gone international and launched internationally, even the most niche players. And we're now in a time of economic challenge for many households. So there has been the perennial share of wallet debate, which means that uh, we have uh, made some assumptions uh, that suggest that households will only tolerate a certain amount of SVODs. We've seen that that's not the case in the US, that actually during COVID, for obvious reasons, that stretched from 2.5 per household to 7. It's now retrenching back, but there's also another dynamic that's building up, which is uh, free ad-funded streamed television, which is, again, uh, another business model that's now scaling across the US and internationally. Um, and that is another conversation which we'll have today as to where, whether that's actually an evolution of the existing broadcast model or whether it's a new model in and of itself. So to, to your point about price and content, yes, we've seen an inflation of content prices and we're now seeing a retrenchment from that and there'll be some consequences to that. So there was a massive... Um, race for original content spend and access to talent and build out of inventory uh, interrupted a little bit by COVID but nevertheless the purpose of that was obviously that the distinguishing factor for um, these streaming services was original content uh, exclusivity in the original content space and that's why they spent so much money measuring global growth as they did um, and pricing is also being challenged. Why? Because the economic model that was uh, built out on isn't sustainable given the level of costs. So we are seeing yeah. more fragmented market and we are seeing the competition now shake out some of some of the uh, content spend. Mm-hmm. I well, that's a more uh, more elaborate and as it should be a view of uh, of the evolution. Mine was uh, obviously a bit of a summary, but uh, there was an interesting point that you raised there um, b because there was change, but not really a lot of change. Uh, so there's still fragmentation, just fragmented. The market is fragmented in in a different way, right? Um, and I think uh, this is a point that we have when we first spoke, which is the irony of the current situation where uh, it seems that the OTT players uh, are reinventing t traditional television. But the, the most uh, interesting point here in th that you mentioned is that there seems to be Netflix a as a leader, which it was, and, and a pioneer in the service, at least in terms of scale and, and novelty, for sure, on the consumer side. But the different players that then entered the market, they seem to be very different. And this may, may sound obvious or seem obvious, but the fact is that uh, not only the, um, the fact that they have libraries, content libraries that they, they owned and they licensed to Netflix in the beginning, so they have more of, well, traditional or at least legacy content to, to make uh, for, for consumers to access, but also that, that some of the players can actually afford to have OTT as a loss leader, right? And I'm thinking just three on top of my mind, like three examples, the, the most popular ones like Disney Plus, like it's, it's just a channel, uh, it's, a, it's a cog within the uh, Disney machine. And it's linked uh, linked towards all the, to all the other divisions. Then we got HBO Max, which is again bundled as part of uh, the AT and T uh, service in the US, and Amazon Prime, which is a sort of a freemium library that's a nice to have to keep uh, Amazon customers in the loop. And I'm sure there are others, but uh, I mean this. Uh, 
I mean, this position or this, uh, the, the role of OTT as central or at least key to set these players versus the, the role that OTT has for Netflix, which is their own or their main and core uh, revenue stream. Like, do you th see this? Um, is it safe to say that not all players are fighting the same war or facing the same uh, pressure? I think costs, etc. I think their motivations differ quite considerably. I think mm. it's important to really again step back and look at the why of what what motivated them to to spend so much money on tech and to um, uh, in some cases to really build a, a very risky proposition given their traditional lines of revenue. So let's go to Disney for instance. Disney was in a situation where it was a premium content provider. Uh, Disney's challenge has been that it has lines of business from uh, that are basically a franchise that builds out of its um, its content arm and its um, and its uh, its uh, theme parks as well. So mm -hmm. uh, one of the challenges it's had in its is the link um, in finding out where its consumer is across all lines of business. So it can measure its TV consumer. It can measure its um, it can measure its uh, theme parks entries. It can do all of that, but it can't actually measure the value of that consumer across all lines of business. Having a streaming proposition does a couple of things. One is it puts it it puts itself at the center of its distribution, which is very important. Secondly, it also gets da invaluable data about its consumer so it can really understand each and every element of its lines of business. So in building out its franchises, it can really truly create a value per customer analysis that's really um, effective. It is motivated by that because it brings together all its businesses and it also makes it a player in the future. So I think uh, that is a prime motivation and that is the, the vision that Bob Iger had when he originally moved to street streaming. I think They have spent a lot of money on it. They have changed their their whole workforce and structure around it. We've seen what's happened with Bob Chesbeck and uh, and the stock price. So they have taken a commercial risk. Um, they've also taken a commercial risk in 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 cinema windowing and other things. Uh, and so it, it, they are still finding their way forward. But, um, you know, on the back of Netflix earnings calls last week, their stock seems to have come up again and uh, Bob Iger is now back in charge. It's interesting he's dismantling some of the things that he actually set up. <laughs> so there are some learnings there. But, uh, you know, they went very quickly. They were the first major studio to go that way and they really went full hog. And uh, But their motivation was that they had a very broad-ranging franchise business and so they could really see the value of uh, tracking their customers across from inception of the franchise all the way through to consumer products and the experience of the theme parks, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, so it, you're, it that's, yeah. that, that's Disney. Um, Discovery Warner Brothers is a different scenario altogether. First of all, Discovery and Warner Brothers, or Warner Brothers Discovery, I should say. But uh, first of all, they were not a single entity when they divide their streaming uh, strategy. Um, you know, and Discovery was already working with BAMTech and it was looking at streaming for the purposes of its acquisition of sports rights. And it really did a lot of work in that division. Um, 
HBO Max did a massive rollout and saw itself as a third player. Of course, Jason Kalar's background was Hulu and Amazon. He was he's very firmly in the streaming camp and in the digital futures camp. Um, his motivation was to really uh, move uh, Warner Brothers and its content into uh, the digital space and scale and catch up with Netflix. And uh, that has slightly changed. Again, the premium content sort of setup of HBO Max has been cut back by um, by the management because they're looking at uh, making uh, stabilizing their stock price and really um, have had a fairly extensive internal review and co- cost cutting review. Um, one of the things that happened that was differentiating a lot of these uh, streamers was the spend in local content and local production companies, and that's been cut back by HBO Max quite considerably as well. But the motivation there from from HBO Max was to play catch-up and scale HBO Max because of the quality of its content to be number two or three in a three-horse race as it saw it. The motivation for Discovery is different. Discovery is a different beast. Uh, it's linear uh, service network was extensive. It was already a global network, uh, but it was but it was testing this in relation to sports rights. So let's see what happens with the combined service. Um, and then Amazon, we all know what Amazon's motivation is, and we all know where, why it gets into content. world domination. World domination. <laughs> you know, it is. I would say the reverse of Disney. It was absolutely yeah. driven by serving customers and. And uh, you know, getting people to buy as much from its uh, platform as possible. So, uh, you know, all of these come from very different places. Absolutely. I mean, so they are indeed uh, fighting in the same battlefield, but uh, somewhat different war with different uh, with the same different goal, motivation. but different motivation. Exactly. And I think you you believe you also mentioned. I think it would be interesting to add just even another player to the mix, which is Paramount Plus. Which is, which is also a somewhat unique motivation, would you say? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, amazing library, uh, uh, quite an exceptional uh, The revolution has ha- happened at Paramount in the last three or four years because mm-hmm. Paramount um, was pretty much the also-ran brand uh, and it, uh, it was carrying a lot of disjointed legacy brands like MTV and others and CBS and others, And I have to say two things have really changed uh, how it's doing internationally. One is the creation of Paramount Plus as a streaming service which brings together some of the iconic um, iconic uh, content that it's had and uh, has had quite a successful rollout, particularly as HBO withdrew with the Discovery um, cuts. Uh, so it's been impressive to see how Paramount Plus has scaled in the last uh, two years and what they've done in their content lineup. And then, of course, uh, the purchase of Pluto TV. So what they have and what they've had from inception, unlike the others, is a, uh, a hybrid model through that uh, with both Paramount Plus and Pluto TV, which creates a really interesting dynamic. And of course, you know, When you look at the Netflix earnings last week, what are the things that um, uh, the market gets excited about? It gets excited about new opportunities for revenue beyond just subscriber b- growth. And there are two th- things that Netflix is um, 
is is using to to draw positive attention is its password sharing account crackdown, which is a hopes to scoop up some extra revenue from that. And of course, its ad funded layer, which it's still experimenting with, but intends to beef up. And these are the things that Wall Street is getting quite excited about. So Paramount was ahead of the game on that one and is very much touting that and is very much building out in its own uh, ecosystem, both traditional um, brands that it's feeding into the uh, Fast model and the Avod model and also Paramount+. Plus. And with, with an original production slate that is also quite interesting where it's actually going back to some of its key um, titles and franchises and revive, reviving them for the 21st century. So really interesting. I, I've been fascinated to watch. It's got some very, very good executives that are, uh, that are you know, at the f- forefront of this, and it's been very impressive to see Paramount's progress in the last couple of years. Absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree. And I was about, b- before we get to that, uh, the ad-based model, which I think will focus that on the, the consumer segment, I would just also like to, to add that, uh, and speaking about Paramount, how impressive, there, there's always been since the, the, the like, with, with the changes of Windows and release Windows and how long is a theatrical release. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. always that debate with Netflix being a bit, Netflix versus uh, big screen and the cinema chains. But it's impressive how uh, Paramount was able to do that. That. And especially when we see last year's uh, Juggernaut uh, Top Gun Maverick, right? How it performed so well. Then it went straight into via uh, into their streaming service, but then it was re-released, and there was as they still managed to get I think five, seven million, even more um, in in revenue. And it's it's just it, it's really impressive how they were able to you know create a certain harmony between the different channels, you know, not biting the hand that feeds them or that used to, and that was so kind to them in the past. And that's something that, for example, Warner couldn't couldn't pull out, and that was also it had. Uh, big issues, right? With uh, not only the some of the properties, but also some of the talent. And I'm thinking of Christopher Nolan's issue <laughs> and his departure yeah. from Warner. And I think Jason, I think Jason has a tech background first, and so I'm not sure that he fully embraced the need for a theatrical window. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's been a tension between the studios and the cinemas for mm-hmm. a long time. I think yeah. the COVID situation really brought it out and allowed the, the studios to experiment. Once we got out of COVID, um, there was a desire to go back to the old windowing structure. By that stage, the streaming services had scaled. And so at the moment, we're really in a, in a period where we're trying to find some um, compromise and collaboration. And, and, you know, there's a couple of things that are happening there. One is obviously the big titles like Maverick, where, you know, Tom Cruise himself was saying that they had to be theatrically released. So they were, the talent was absolutely sitting on that theatrical release as indisputable. And he was right, because it really killed it at the box office, and it's become a major hit. Um that whole theatrical experience and the the value chain that that represents um, is still out there for the big uh, titles. The question is more for the independents and whether they'll get the right path to release in the box office or whether streaming is going to be where they're going to be heading. That's where the Netflix model is quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think, you know, Netflix has already made some announcements about, you know, not doing so many films and, and not yeah. being a film studio. And 
So, you know, let's see, let's see the economics of something like Glass Onion, which was released. You know, that was an interesting mm-hmm. experiment, which I think deserves attention because here was a, um, a, a streamer funded release, exclusive mm-hmm. release, but, it, but also given a, a window on one of the top um, weekends of the year. And so I think that was uh, quite interesting too. Um, and I think let's see if the streamers start to experiment a bit more on that. Um, Disney is obviously the one to watch in this space because it's got an issue now with its own uh, streaming versus theatrical. Exactly. I would say also just add it's uh, interesting to have the different trajectories and and outcomes of uh, and of course under different circumstances of uh, not only Glass Onion but also uh, Spielberg's The Fablements, right? Which was also uh, given the, the similar uh, similar release date uh, during the holidays uh, 2022, and it didn't perform well. Let's say it, it's uh, slightly underperformed. Um, and it was immediately released on, on, on streaming. So, uh, again, that will also play on, on so many other variables, such as uh, awards and, uh, and, and also how uh, the, the public's perception. So definitely I think these two examples will be used and revisited in the foreseeable future, both Glass Onion and The Fablements. And interestingly enough, Glass Onion doesn't seem to have, the, its theatrical release doesn't seem to have impacted negatively uh it's uh it's streaming uh, numbers on netflix mm-hmm. so apparently um yeah 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 but, i mean yeah. again yeah, two two interesting cases and and glass onion definitely uh, uh the, the most uh, interesting one of, of both i think um also in, in terms of just uh moving to to the next uh, next topic we we've talked about different motivations different uh, ambitions, aspirations, and, and growth. And it always sounds very, very positive despite the increasing uh, costs of production. But we have we cannot neglect the fact that there's been a massive uh, consolidation, and we touched a bit on that already, uh, in, in, in this space. So for the last few years, we had the Disney acquiring Fox in 2019, then Amazon acquiring MGM, and then Warner with Discovery, as, as we already mentioned. So these were mega deals, right? And and these are just not only like blimps on the radar, they're simply, uh, they're, they're massive, you cannot ignore. And I mean, is this trend, in, in, in your opinion, expected to continue? Uh, what are the, the focus areas in the acquisition space? Essentially, what's next? <laughs> well, I mean, we've had a pretty tumultuous time and we've seen the stock, the, the share price of the tech platforms plummet uh, so whereas we would have forecast two or three months ago that you know the tech companies would be swallowing up some of the content companies and serving their own uh, purposes uh, query whether that's going to be the case with the current issues and struggles that they have um, I think you have to again look at the why of consolidation I think um, I suspect um Warner Brothers' discovery was partly opportunistic because AT&T wanted to disinvest from Warner Brothers. But, I, uh, you know, there's a lot of rumours about Disney and where Disney's going to go. There's a lot of rumours about uh, consolidation. Um, I, I, I Open season, really. I don't know <laughs> at this stage because the, the price, the stock prices are all over the place at the moment. So exactly. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. What's your view on it? Where do you see this going? 
I mean, it, it's very interesting. Again, I'm, I'm I'm not an expert, but like they say, I play one on TV. <laughs> Quoting, <Yeah>. um, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I think it's it's interesting. Uh, like the, the the point that you mentioned, because up until say Q3 last year, there was always the notion of tech acquiring media, right? That yes. was the or, or tech acquiring these media players, and now it seems to be reversed, right? Now there's the opportunity for the media giants, those who or the few who are uh, cash rich or in a position to do so, to actually attack. And, and to use your methodology, I think the the key concept here is to understand what will be well, not only which targets, but mostly what what do do these players need to differentiate themselves to sustain growth right and i think we we, we mentioned if some points are is, is aggregation the way to go if so then maybe buy uh less well performing uh competitors but i think the key point here is the the role of the technological and technical innovation and and something i know you're familiar and interested in which is the metaverse the role of metaverse um in in the future of content consumption right so this is i, I think if we look at the macro trends with these answers to the why or maybe these drivers i think we're not going to pinpoint exactly who's going to be bought by whom but we can get an idea of what the levers are or what the criteria will be for acquisitions i don't know if you agree with me i answer your question with one question but <laughs> no i think i think you're absolutely right and let's let's be completely candid um content is more monetized through the engagement of its audiences and audience engagement has become one-to-one, not one-to-many, um, because of the way that the, the, the digital space works. So what is going to help with that? Um, we, we're going through a very interesting period of um, consolidation, and in terms of monetization, the, the key battleground at the moment is for the um, connected TV space and who's going to own the operating system there and who's going to be able to own the commercial environment of it and the ad, um, the consistency of the ad measurement around CTV. And that's a key, key, key issue in all of this in terms of playing out free ad-funded content, which is also the space that we need to look at. Um, So if I was a Disney, I would be looking at that. I'd be looking at my network holdings and thinking they, they're a declining asset, presumably as people move to digital. How do how and what do I do beyond Disney Plus? Uh, and what do I do next to consolidate and uh, own that sector of monetization? Um, and so naturally you would look at um, acquisitions around that, uh, acquisitions that enable you and, and, and relationships and partnerships. I think we're going to see a lot of partnerships playing out that might not have played out beforehand. Again, Paramount's been really interesting in the way it's rolled out Paramount Plus. It's been developing partnerships, including their airlines and others, uh, in order to get massive distribution in areas and sectors that typically wouldn't be thought of by streamers. So uh, I think CTVs uh, are going to be building out the ecosystem. So the tech around all of that is very valuable. There are other areas too um, that create monetization opportunities that might not have happened. So we've looked at a, a engagement and the metaverse. So let's talk about shoppable TV, which has never been properly cracked. But if we're looking at a, a world where 
attention and engagement is critical and a very smooth um, consumer consumption of co content is critical, keeping your uh, audience in your video so that you own and can monetize directly from that. Any tech that enables that is going to be really interesting to uh, to whoever is owning the content to acquire it. You know, at the moment we have a little bit of a, a an uneven imbalance between the platforms and who are monetizing the content and the content producers because in order to monetize the content, the consumer has to actually go outside of the video experience. That in mm -hmm. itself, I think is a big issue and if someone can crack that then uh, there's a whole lot of uh, opportunity there for content owners as well and i think mm -hmm. that uh, that's an area that uh, we'll see some activity so i think there's going back to your point where are we going to see next are we going to see mega deals that i i really don't know yet because um you know the um mm -hmm. the the, the pricing of the the major players and the, 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 has has moved so considerably in the last six months. Uh, are we going to see acquisitions? Yes, definitely. Where are they going to be? Uh, are they going to be in innovative tech that builds engagement, builds ability to monetize? Are they going to be in bundling and business models? And maybe are the are the telcos going to get involved? Are the telcos going to buy their way back into being significant content players as opposed to being pipes, which is how they've operated for the last 10 years? Very interesting, you know, because actually, you know, Orange, for instance, in France has just sold its share to OSV to um, Canal. I mean, What's what's uh, Vodafone going to do? What's other big tech? What are other big telcos going to do? Are we going to see a revival of the content play of the the mobile operators? And where where or or the reverse? I mean, who knows? It's it's a massive TVD. I agree with you there. I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I guess it also depends on uh, if we see it like we've been generalizing a, a bit, but there's also like several differences from market to market, right? Uh, whereas in continental yeah. Europe, you have quad play is still a thing. In the yeah. UK, it's it's not pushed. Like it doesn't exist. Well, at least in the, in the same breadth and extent as it does in, in Europe. And again, in the US, different situation. So I think this will be a, a mix of tons of variables, including uh, what's your geographical uh, footprint, the company's or the telco's geographical footprint, interest appetite capital reserves and again it's not like they were cash rich like they were in the early till semi late 2000s um so there is there is a lot of a, a lot to be to be said there yeah and in those days the, a lot of um those acquisitions were were about creating a um a vertical distribution line for and owning mm -hmm. the whole vertical of uh of of the uh, consumer. I think one of the things that will drive a lot of these interests is also some of the legislation around first party data, particularly, you know, given mm -hmm. the recent decision in, uh, in, in Europe on Facebook and the fact that Facebook uh, consent form for first party data and tracking uh, was mm -hmm. deemed um, illegal. And now we're waiting on the 10th of February for a decision 
on the uh, joint venture between the telcos to create an advertising platform. These are really mm-hmm. key, very interesting um, developments. And if I was someone looking at acquisition, I would be monitoring those developments because they will change the ad market in this in, in Europe and uh, create opportunities um, that were not there prior to that. I think I think Meta's got a problem on its hands in Europe. Um, any performance marketers have <laughs> some challenges on their hands too. <laughs> and uh, that ability to own first-party data, own your and engage your your viewer, your consumer, your uh, and 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 drive them to monetizable experiences without having to go outside of your universe is going to be what's going to motivate people also in terms of acquisitions. Mm-hmm. C- completely agree, and 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 again, one point that we we mentioned throughout this conversation so far, it's the the, the role of consumers, right? We talk like companies, 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 but the, the consumers are at 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 the front and center. And you already mentioned that there was this elusive cap of the, on the number of uh, services, like two point five, if I'm not mistaken, the the average number of uh, services the the consumer or the average consumer would subscribe to. Initially, uh, that was. That was the number yeah. touted a couple of years ago, and people said they'll yeah. never have more than two, maybe three uh, SVOD services, and it rose to seven in the US. Seven. So, exactly. uh, and it's now going back down, and I think it's dropping everywhere for obvious reasons. Um, and these are the SVOD services, of course. Uh, no one's yeah. putting a cap on fast services because there's no need to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and, but when we look at this, w- what's happening, it's also interesting to see the, the consumer the consumer perspective. And I need to quote this uh, survey. This was pre-COVID, so take it with a pinch of salt, but the 2019 survey conducted by KPMG showing that price and ad-free options were more important uh, in terms of as a criteria uh, when selecting a video streaming service uh, than content in the, the consumer perspective. I don't know if this is uh, th- that true or not? Uh, you know what? Uh, <laughs> if that was the case, we wouldn't have had the rush to original production that the streamers have had. So I would yeah. question that. I always okay. question these surveys and who's asked. The other mm-hmm. assumption that people make is that younger um, demographics don't pay for content. And in fact, I saw a survey just recently to say, mm-hmm. no, if there is original content and they want to see that content, they will pay for it. Um, so they, they do have a propensity to pay. They've got used to paying through Spotify a monthly subscription and that's become part of their necessary overheads. Netflix quickly mm-hmm. falls behind that. Um, so I think some of these assumptions that we might have made are changing and we probably need to do a bit more surveys and a bit more, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of consumer behaviour. What What is true is that... Um, we are going through economic downturns at the moment and share of wallet is relevant. So that might favour a fast environment and free ad-funded services. Um, let's see how things go in the next quarter and see where that goes in terms of churn for SVODs. And I think that's probably why we're seeing a rush to hybrid solutions. It's it's super interesting because uh, back to the point you made on uh, the whole uh, balance between tech and media or or pure uh, media players, how um, 
now it seems that the the media and or the, the media tech conglomerates if you will are expanding solely into the ad-based model whereas uh, you can't miss this uh, under elon musk twitter is trying to go to doing the opposite i'm not uh, commenting on that or on how successful it has been on the whole subscription versus ads but it's just interesting and just another point of how this dynamic is not only within the landscape uh, or, or within the comp competitors, but also within the those who used to acquire and those who used to be acquired, right? <laughs> so it's uh, I think it's it's definitely interesting, and 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 I mean I agree. I think content is king is not just a mantra; it's 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 a fact. Um, and also, how will consumers react? with with the price changes and with these new options because the fact is that yeah inflation exists period but uh prices have 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 increased and they, they for for these services and they've been increasing more often right um and and the percentage uh, increase is uh, keeps growing as well so it's it's interesting to understand that um if netflix originally was supposed to be an affordable or a, 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 a more uh were a low cost without compromising quality um access to entertainment it, that's no longer the case i mean you could easily comment or, or compare the average cost of six or seven subscriptions monthly subscriptions versus going to the movies or even having basic cable right and it's more more balanced than it used to be in the past and one thing when we talk about consumers in the next step which is content i think and it's something you'll uh, definitely have have a say in an opinion is the role of live sports which for ever have been um something that it's it goes beyond the nature of the content it's just something you need to experience in in uh, you cannot watch it later it's not the same thing right it's something that needs to be experienced now when it happens and and this is interesting to see first what this impact would be not only on on the consumers but also if it's something that uh could motivate or make a shift in um the decisions that we've discussed so far so that's a really interesting point, Peter, and thank you for bringing up life sports because I think that, is, again, is a, a critical dynamic and it's a piece of content um, that can't be time-shifted uh, in any way. It is what people will pay to see. Um, it's always been the big differentiator between the pay TV providers and we've got a history spanning decades of high competition for sports rights within those. Um, I think a couple of things. We've seen some interesting innovation with Amazon in sports rights. We've seen some conversation about ESPN and Disney and how they will integrate ESPN and live sports rights in Disney+. Plus. We've also had a decision recently uh, from in Europe on the um, Olympics uh, where the EBU has shared the rights with Discovery, with Warner Brothers Discovery, which is a really interesting um, an, um, model because what that does is that preserves the ability for sports rights to be seen on a linear public broadcasting service but also um, enables um, Discovery to exploit those rights for its both its SVODs and, and whatever other um, digital incarnation it chooses to uh, exploit in Europe for those rights. Um, so a couple of things on that. Yes, live sports clearly um, drives uh, acquisition and of of um, of paid um, subscribers or paid viewership. It also drives um, advertising value 
in premier sports moments. But there's also another thing happening, which is which happened at the last Olympics and which started in the UK Olympics of 2012, which is that digital platforms enable a much broader um, exposure of sports rights as well. So you get niche sports that start to have relevance and start to become uh, interesting from a financial point of view. Um, I think this hasn't fully played out yet. Um, we're going to see a lot of movement in that. Uh, and certainly uh, the uh, the various uh, sports organisations and federations that broker their rights will try and leverage that. And the only question I have is to what extent um, governments will intervene and uh, create uh, regulatory boundaries in terms of allowing rights to go to global streamers. So mm-hmm. watch that space. I think it's a very important okay. space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely if there's a, a requirement there with a partnership with local markets, say with a local player to be able to yeah. carry that that weight. I, I think it's it's interesting because you, you mentioned a lot of points on, on the benefits of live sports and definitely how it's a, it's more than just a nice to have. It, it's it's becomes somewhat critical. But one question I have is how effective are live sports or this type of content in, let's say, reduced churn? Right, well, reducing. Yeah, it's the right term. Let's say reducing churn. Are they? Do they turn consumers into? Well, do they increase their stickiness to a service, their loyalty, if you will? Uh, If you go back to the pay TV model, that's certainly what they believe, and that's why they've Mm -hmm. spent an absolute fortune in the billions (laughs) to preserve access to sports rights, particularly with football in Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. You know. There's been lots and lots of ink <laughs> on all of that, um, and lots of uh, conversations. I think, uh, I think it's. I think you know, in, in when you're calculating how much you're going to pay for uh, a series, um, mm-hmm. you know, access to, I know, uh, a major sports event and the series of events that lead up to it you are going to calculate the impact it's going to have on your revenue inevitably and that also involves um, impact on churn and acquisition of customers. It involves your impact on your ad revenue and how much you could sell that mm-hmm. for. And you know, So I think we have seen that services in pay TV that have live sports are the ones that people stick with because they have live sports, and I think Sky would say that a good section of its um, subscribers in the UK expected to have an, uh, those rights, otherwise it would face quite a lot of churn if it didn't, mm-hmm. um, and that's what enables it to charge the prices it does for Sky Sports. But uh, I think, I think so in short, <laughs> yes, I do think <laughs> it impacts uh, retention and churn. And yeah. let's see whether it's the case for the digital platforms. I don't think exactly. we've tested enough yet. Um, and there is a big difference. Digital platforms um, have a much more agile customer set because it's mm-hmm. a monthly subscription, so people churn much more freely than they do in a pay TV environment because of various things, including the triple and quad play models that would keep them in their current subscription. 
Mm-hmm. Also, one thing that you mentioned is the nature of the content not only within sports. Let's uh, talk about the the new world of esports, right? And that's a completely different beast with a completely different audience, at least from what I've what I've researched and read. Uh, and uh, again, that will also be interesting to see what are the uh, the patterns or the the consumer behaviors when we look at this specific type of uh, events. You're right, actually. I mean, esports is pretty amazing uh, given the scale of those events. Um, I'm not familiar enough with the monetization of esports, um, but I do think uh, it's an interesting area. Uh, and uh, certainly, there's a lot of people who believe passionately in that. There's a structural issue with esports, which mm-hmm. um, is creates. Um, some barriers to monetization, and that is that uh, the publishers are not the same as the venues for the esports, and so there is a, mm. a disconnect in terms of the ability to translate the monetization models across. Um, mm. But I, I do, I do think it's fascinating. So the question is, will they become uh, also uh, monetizable events on streamers? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. This is a different, slightly different experience, but yeah. I'm sure people will try. A- absolutely. Uh, I-, I think here this is, or the angle where I'm coming from, it's uh, always the, um, you know, uh, technology integration, because not to use a stereotype, but, but, but the esports uh, aficionados or, or generally the audience will be more uh technologically not advanced, but at least more prone to adopt and and embrace, uh, say, a metaverse experience or something like that. So certainly I don't know how big it will be, but it can be, you know, sort of like a lab experiment in terms of the the future, right? And let's go back to this point that we were making earlier about Mm -hmm. um, e-commerce and the transformation Mm -hmm. of e-commerce through the metaverse and through interactive designs, which enables you to stay in video and purchase, if that can be cracked, then uh, there is an, an amazing solution. Uh, and we all know that uh, esports and the games around esports have monetizable opportunities through merchandising around all the characters, mm-hmm. um, which haven't been fully exploited, partly because if you're watching an esports game and you have to click outside of that game, the second screen hasn't yet yet delivered full effectiveness uh Mm -hmm. so if there is technology that enables you to do that wow yep there's a whole (laughs) revenue stream that suddenly appears and and you know as the ux experience of interactive tv changes and it will change with both the metaverse and you know any other ux developments that come up in video as people are looking into that then uh i think yes we'll have uh, a lot of opportunities for monetizable events such such as esports Absolutely. I mean, yeah, like we keep uh, finding new new options and new intriguing uh, ways <laughs> the future can unfold. Um, and, and, and so far, we talked about, again, the, the, the big C's, right, companies and, and, and consumers, and we, we touched upon content now. And, and it seems that the trend seems to be like we're getting more siloed versions or content seems to be fragmented or all over the place. If you want to watch your favorite shows or even the classics, you need to subscribe again to maybe six, seven, or maybe more uh, platforms. And this creates sort of a a paradox of of choice for the consumer, right? Um, But the the big interest or the most interesting thing here is how 
OTT and, and, and streaming changed uh, consumption habits. Uh, so the pioneering of the binge watching uh, where consumers can watch a, a whole season in, in a day. Um, but again, binge watching seems to be falling out of uh, flavor with uh, both uh, the, the providers and the consumers. And I mean, even I believe, well, there were some rumors that uh, some some players were trying to reverse this strategy. We know that uh, Amazon certainly does it, where they release a couple of episodes and then the season is released like traditional TV every, every week, a new episode. Um, is this something that I mean, you've been seeing. What are your thoughts on on this, especially as a vehicle to reduce churn and maybe increase loyalty? So you're talking about the shift in terms of how people are scheduling their um, the release of their of their original productions. We've got yeah. the interesting example of um, Apple that released the first four episodes, and then the next week by week. Um, And yet, you know, the latest Emily in Paris was released all in one go. I think, I think you're right. I think that that will change. I think we're starting to see a shift. Uh, even Netflix is saying it won't necessarily release everything all in one go. Um, one of the one of the challenges, of course, is search and recommendation tools haven't really evolved that much. And um, there are some, uh, some, there's some tech, there's some social tech where you can just say, I'm in this mood. What do you suggest tonight? Uh, AI-driven uh, new social feeds that are, uh, that are starting to enable you to locate where your content is according to your mood and, and where you're going. And I think they will have an impact on search and recommendation and access to content and how you market your content and where you you know, your, how you build your metadata around that content. But mm -hmm. for the consumer, consumer overwhelm is a, is a real thing and it, it, it really hasn't been helped by the search and recommendation tools that are available today. So, again, this is an area where I think we're going to see a lot of attention paid. I think AI will drive a considerable um, change in, in, in that and we'll start to see not just the voice activation but we'll start to see maybe some changes in the way that you can surf and navigate content. I suspect that the rights grant originally for the content will mean that that may need to be loosened and people will want to navigate according to moods, thoughts, feelings, not just uh, titles and Google search for content. So um, you're right, there is consumer overwhelm and the uh, race for consumer attention how you get your content um, seen, how you engage the consumer of that content is important. Uh, all I would say about that is that, unfortunately, traditional marketers tend have thought traditionally about where they speak to their consumers about content, but people are making a decision to view content much earlier now, and they're making it in social groups and social in social chat. And so, again, anything that's involved social and involves the ability to search on social is going to have a massive impact. Um, mm -hmm. And if I was someone who was in charge of some significant marketing budget, I would really look at speaking to a viewer way before you even think about releasing your content and starting the conversation early, building it up. So one thing that's interesting to see, for instance, is the Friday campaign recently on Netflix I thought that was amazing. That really created a buzz. It went across everywhere and everyone was talking about it. So 
I do think um, the consumers will ask for um, some clarity as to what they want to view a lot earlier and in their social environment where they just make the decision about what content to view. It's it's very, very interesting. I mean, certainly how it's been presented and, and beyond navigation, more on the, the frequency and uh, cadence of, of content, there's been a lot of change there. And, and you did mention the role of AI and even sometimes novelty. And I, I guess this comes back to the... Uh, the roots or, or the more idealistic aspects of the of the entertainment industry, which is creativity, right? What we've been seeing, at least from my perspective, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is the use of algorithm and metadata and even AI to validate production. Um, but if if platforms have a limited amount of content um, and, and limited content because it, it's more um, uh, fragmented and it's all over the place, then you're sort of creating, at least the way I see it, an eco chamber where you watch the same thing over and over. And, and we know that there's the rewatchable content that, uh, that um, for, for which uh, platforms pay a premium price. And we're talking uh, shows like the, the office and, and friends where people just rewatch them. Right. Um, and at the same time, um, so th these players have a limited amount of uh, content that they can show and uh, on which they can co collect data even more so. And at the same time, they're reducing their uh, risk appetite for, and we understand why, but uh, as you mentioned, Netflix has already suspended the, the production of those uh, prestige and, and insane uh, projects like uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, The Irishman in 2019, mm -hmm. which had a very, very big budget. And I did enjoy the movie, but that's, that's beside the point. But um, I, I think here the, the question is the balance between creativity and, and novelty and the reliance on AI and uh, making judgments based on the content that they have and how that could preclude um, the existence of the future, the Sopranos or Mad Men or Lost or, or even Breaking Bad, right? Um, so how do you think, uh, and again, maybe this, I'm a very pessimist on the, on this front, but how do you, do you think that this is a reality that we could, uh, that could soon be, well, the norm? I think things go through cycles. Uh, we saw... Um, at one stage in the early 20s, um, an obsession by networks to judge uh, a show by the immediate impact of its audience, forgetting that some shows had taken weeks and weeks and weeks to build an audience and we had a lot of cancellation of series in those days. I think, you know, it may be that the easy way for schedulers to look at that is to judge on the basis of metrics that are easily available through data that's easily available immediately and be very harsh on that judgment. But there is a difference now. The consumer has a voice through social. And so there is a way of bringing back things that are cancelled. Um, it's not a one-way street. I think, you know, we'll see what happens. Yes, it is a risk when there is uncertainty, as there is now, that you that the um, evaluation criteria narrows and uh, that they use data to make a choice between one or the other rather than, uh, looking at consumer data, they, they use their own internal viewing data uh, and therefore that leads into a funnel in terms of the type of content that works or doesn't work and therefore we become less creative with the choices that we make for commissioning, which is what happened in the, in the networks in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the early noughties. That's exactly what mm -hmm. happened. And the series were incredibly dull in networks and <laughs> people moved away from them and the big changing shift happened when when um, 
suddenly the streamers started to commission content and we started to see a whole different flow of golden age of TV and creativity as a result because mm-hmm. they weren't basing their uh, their decisions on the same criteria as the networks. So you're right to be concerned. I think we can be concerned, but we can also you know, trust the consumer and the consumer does have a voice and a way of expressing themselves and mobilising themselves. The other layer to that, which I think is really important, is that we... We are, we are in a time of incredible creative capability. The barrier to creativity is very low um, and we have a whole generation that has been brought up to create its own content who will be looking at the next level of content, premium content. They can't be ignored. So it won't be just the platform's decision, really. There's content being created. Look at music. Look at the music mm-hmm. industry for a model. There is content that is being created that doesn't go through the commissioning process of a major. And that content has huge impact. So I think we can we can look forward to some very creative um, content coming out that's from sources that we don't expect because people can self-publish and people can build their own audiences. And so that is, I think, exciting. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And, and, and even if, if we don't have that, we can always uh, pay a bit more and uh, try and get access to the likes of movie and Criterion Channel and, and more niche players, which seem to be... I haven't looked at their financials. Many of them are not publicly traded, but they seem to be doing somewhat well considering the amount of content, new and original content that they put out uh, in the case of Shudder and in terms of the criterion, considering their loyal uh, fan base, they seem to be be doing well despite... Yeah, it's, the, it's uh, all about ARPU. If they've got exactly. a small amount of fans and those yeah. fans are absolutely indestructible and committed and they don't churn and they've got low churn and they've controlled their churn and they know exactly how much they need to spend to make it interesting, then it's a great business model. You know, we we have niche cable channels that have existed for 30 years very successfully and then been sold very successfully. So why wouldn't the same be of streaming services? Absolutely, absolutely. And and we're also seeing, uh, based on this, like, more niche, uh, an evolution that touches on uh, different aspects that we, we talked about today, such as the interaction with, with the, the, the end user. And this is, I'm um, using the example of uh, A24 and their, their new membership subscription, right, which not only uh, grants them access to exclusive content, but also uh, access to special events and the maybe the possibility to meet some of the stars of their favorite movies and, and content. And, and Disney is toying or showing some interest in, in rolling out a similar service. So, I mean, will this uh, be um, a new opportunity uh, to, to, again, increase loyalty? Or will this be um, just uh, a service that can be provided by those who can afford it? I, Disney will probably be able to afford it, but something... A bit more. <laughs> I think what you're talking about is bringing communities into into the value proposition and serving those communities with uh, experiential environments that engage them and make them feel part of that community. Um, personally, I'm a passionate believer that that's the way forward. If I was a marketer, that is exactly what I would focus on, including, by the way, not just for TV services but for cinemas. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are in an age where community matters and um, holding on to that community and servicing them and, and, and creating reasons for them to, to be loyal matters. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And even in the small niche 
services. So I don't think it's going to be just exclusively maybe the type of experience maybe. But, you know, if, if I was Disney, it absolutely sits across all my lines of business. If you're creating a franchise with a fandom, you want to build those experiences and build them on and on and on and on and again. And, you, and they, mm-hmm. you know, you want them to feel connected through those experiences and to feel loyal. Sorry, and there's yeah. another element of that, which is some of those experiences create opportunity to get first-party data, so why wouldn't you? Exactly. And, and I think beyond that, what you were talking about, like it really uh, like connected with me with the, with the fact that this will be the new word of mouth or word of mouth 2.0, if you will. You know, I was thinking about something, an old example that I read many years ago about the Rocky Horror Picture Show in the 70s and how it slowly built momentum and was part of a community and people were dressing up and showing up. I think this will probably, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I went to a screening uh, last year for the first time. Uh, yeah, so, so it's hilarious. It, it, <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and, and I think that this is certainly that that next step uh, that will bring uh, basically OTT, like th- that everywhere, all the time concept uh, that uh, streaming services are known for uh, into the real world. Not only just you, but you as part of a community and meeting the, the, the other people that, that care and enjoy same things you do. Um, so m- maybe this will be the way forward. We will need to see how A24 and, and if Disney decides how uh, Wait to Force uh, yeah. initiative plays out. Yeah. I agree. And I think cinemas have a role to play in that as well, being a bit more broader in the, in, in mm. how they screen and what they screen. Uh, you know, uh, Awesomeness TV did this five, six years ago. They took some of their YouTubers and then they mm. got them to create long-form content. And then they went for a week and released that long-form content in cinemas. And the cinemas were overwhelmed because the fans were going there. And that was a real example of taking community content, creativity and influences and putting them all together into a uh, sort of a must-attend experience. Um, So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A- absolutely. And and th- this is in a way perceived as a differentiation or at least a way to create something something new or at least build up on, on something that we, we or a fan base and the existing content and then take it the next to the next step and and one thing and this is the the last question before we wrap up is it's a slightly different uh, area within entertainment but still related to streaming which was um relates to one of uh, 2022's biggest stories which was the the short-lived uh cnn plus service right uh, i know we're talking about news not purely entertainment although depending on which source of news you you look at uh, the, the two of them uh, may may uh, be <laughs> the, the the lines are a bit blurred there but what lessons can we learn about or at least can, can we take from differentiation or too much differentiation from this uh, from this uh, case study if you will that's a good question i think um, it was an internal decision which probably had a lot of color to it that we're not exposed to um, there would have been a lot of conversation about platforms, technology, spend on platforms versus other projects in um, in the group. Um, so part of it would have been, you know, do we really need to create a separate platform, a separate entity when we're, you know, focusing also on developing HBO Max and other services? Um, news is a very, very expensive beast. Um, the revenue cycle on news is challenged. We've always, everybody knows that, new services are lost leaders uh, because of the um, 
resources required to actually develop a credible news so- service. Um, I think lessons learned. Uh, that's a good question. Lessons learned. Uh, what have a cohesive internal strategy, or I don't know. I mean, lessons learned about news as a platform. I, I think that the point here would be uh, if, if uh, in a hypothetical scenario, would, would CNN Plus had worked uh, if they were part of a bundle? Say, if you subscribe oh, well, to Paramount that's Plus, a very this isn't good right. Point. And, so and that so, would be, would have that saved CNN Plus? Let's rephrase it. <laughs> Let me rephrase it. Yes, I think bundling would have saved CNN Plus because I think if you look at traditional bundling, bundling news is quite important. If you can crack a news service that forms part of a streaming bundle, That is something that people will view um, because people people do go online for their news now. It's this principal source of information gathering. So maybe it was a bit too early in the um, strategic evolution of the thinking at um, Warner Brothers as it then was. Uh, uh, maybe if it had been a concept that existed today. I think what you're saying is very important. I think bundling in and of itself is something we're going to see a lot more of particularly where there's a, a pressure on share of wallet. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of it. It, it will come. Uh, yeah. It'll be intelli- what I call intelligent bundling, which is looking at the various um, uh, audiences and communities and seeing how you match those across offers. So it'll be interest-based um, uh, according to the data you have, the first-party data you have on your audiences across the services. And I think that's going to be very interesting how bundles develop and how they can be economically viable um, for um, for the consumer. So you're right. Uh, the, um, the decision to get rid of um, CNN Plus was an early decision in the evolution of the streaming um, marketplace. Um, it it The question then becomes, is a news plus service essential in a bundle? And will we see bundles, streaming bundles, mirror some of the pay TV bundles where we will have assumptions about the core requirements of a family, for instance, in their service being kids, sports, general entertainment, news as core to that bundle? And if that's the case then we'll see news streaming services happen in their various formats. So, mm-hmm. yes, uh, I think the learning is it was a little early in the piece. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen the end of what's going to happen to news, just as we haven't seen the full evolution of sports rights and sports mm-hmm. offering, offering on streaming. Uh, DAZN is also making its own uh, place as a sports streamer. How will DAZN be bundled, if it's bundled at all? How are partnerships going to play out? in 2023-24, what do those partnerships look like? Uh, Are we going to see DAZN partner with someone completely different? Are we going to see Disney introduce ESPN? It's already introducing a bundle, but internationally, is it going to start making a play for international sports rights so it can stretch its bundle with ESPN? Are we going to see new services bundled into general entertainment services by various um, platforms. Of course, the aggregators of choice, uh, like the Comcasts and the Skies, are already doing that. So uh, the question is whether it's going to be alternatives available. 
definitely a, a, an interesting an interesting future in, in in that space as well and i mean just wrapping it up like after all we talked about today the we don't have a crystal ball uh but we we can certainly try and 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 pinpoint what we discussed or summarize what we discussed here today what will the future of ott and streaming look like and if i may i'll take just a brief point to, or a brief moment to summarize uh, our or my views on, on our discussion today and then you can correct me <laughs> you have all the time in the world but it's interesting that you mentioned we we talked about the the cyclical nature of of content but also how there seems to be an irony in the reinvention of traditional television right and um basically if uh there is a stagnation in terms of the the type of content or the risk of stagnation like we've seen in the early noughties uh with in, in traditional television then maybe there are some other lessons that uh streamers can look back into it and learn and avoid repeating the mistakes but if we had to look ignoring some of the and it's it's a bit uh, unfortunate that we don't have that uh, that hindsight uh, benefit but if we had to display the future or the, the landscape of, of ott and entertainment i would say that in my view we'd have three or four dominant players, you know, all-encompassing generalists like Netflix and Disney, then several other uh, streaming platforms like NBC, Peacock, and, and Paramount, and maybe even some local uh, players that bet on regional differentiation. And, and then the niche specialist players, like the ones I mentioned, like Criterion Movie, Filmin, Shudder, that uh, have limited growth potential in terms of number of subscribers, but... Uh, the growth that they can get their hands on, they actually have in, insane ARPUs, and those will be those few additions will drive the the big impact. Again, this is not me using my crystal ball, but uh, I would love to hear on view, your view on this. I think you're right uh, in all of that. I think the big uh, battle will be for ARPU and control of ARPU. Uh, that is going to trigger some uh, some developments. Um, Bundling will be one of them. Um, pricing will be another. Um, commercialization and monetization models, introducing new ones or new services will be another. So the ad market will play out on that one. Um, distribution and partnerships will be another element that will be impacted by that. So it's going to be a call to ARPU and retaining ARPU in 2023. And uh, that's basically going to be the measure of all things. And with that comes consumer engagement and really trying to focus on keeping the consumer engaged and tied to your service. So, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and definitely also the, um, well, let's see how these new ad-based uh, services uh, play out or these pricing tiers. Uh, I would say that definitely this merits another episode uh, after after a few months to see how, if the, uh, how things look like when the dust, once the dust has settled. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for agreeing to, to be a guest. Yeah, it's, thank it's you great. for having me on. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you.